0: This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. In this presentation, Dr. Craig discusses the historical Adam and Eve. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.
1: Hello and welcome to Capturing Christianity. My name is Cameron Bertuzzi. Today I have Dr. William Lane Craig and Dr. Josh Swamadas. In discussion today on the genealogical Adam and Eve, or the historical Adam and Eve, we're asking... Were they recent? Did they exist a couple thousand, a few thousand years ago, or did they exist far into the past? I think both of our guests today accept that there was a historical Adam and Eve, but the question, that the, the sort of disagreement between them exists and how long ago they existed. And so we're going to get into that today. Well, let's take about 60 seconds, and I, probably a f- very few people that are watching this need an introduction on who Dr. William Lane Craig is. but let's just go ahead and do it. Dr. Craig, take about 60 seconds and inform our audience a little about who you are, and, and also why you're interested in, in this question in particular, because most people are probably familiar with you, with your debates and dialogues with atheists on the arguments for God's existence. So, so why are you so interested, mm-hmm. at least recently, in the question of the historical Adam and Eve?
0: Well, I'm a professor of philosophy at Houston Baptist University and a visiting scholar in philosophy at Talbot School of Theology and the founder and president of a nonprofit web-based ministry called Reasonable Faith. The reason I got into this subject is that for years I just swept under the rug all of my questions and doubts about Genesis 1 to 11 including Adam and Eve, uh, Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, I just didn't know what to do with these things, and so I just ignored them. But I am in the planning stages of writing a systematic philosophical theology, and in order to do that I had to bone up on areas where I was weak. So for example, one of these was the atonement, and so I spent the last couple years working on the atonement, and have written a couple of books on that. Another area is theological anthropology, and I thought I have got to finally tackle this issue of the historical Adam. And being at the DeBar conference held at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School three years ago, where Joshua spoke, um, really sparked my interest in pursuing this study in an objective and thorough way. And so for the last couple years, I've been Really wrestling with the question of the historical
1: atom. Great, and and to pass it over to Josh, and uh, hopefully it, I've, I've noticed in the comments some people are saying that my microphone was a little loud, so I've turned it down a little bit. I hope that this is an acceptable level. Now let me know if it's uh, if it's still too loud. So, Josh, you've been on the the show before, actually, in discussion with uh, inspiring philosophy. And we were talking about your book the that just came out fairly recently, The Genealogical Adam and Eve. I don't know if uh, it's going to focus here, my camera. It's probably because my face is still in the shot. The Genealogical Adam and Eve. And you've argued that contemporary science is completely compatible with what we find in the Bible, at least with a recently created de novo creation account of Adam and Eve. Well, tell me about your book, and this is actually going to help launch the discussion and as you're sort of laying out the book, first give a, a little background about who you are and, uh, you, you know, you're a scientist and you're interested in these questions. So uh, we'll get into that and then we'll get into the book and then we'll, we'll start the dialogue.
2: Yeah, so I'm a scientist here at Washington University in St. Louis. It's a leading science institution and, and, and I'm really a full-time scientist. Most of my time it's not actually showing up on YouTube or online, but really just doing scientific work. I just submitted a large R01 grant this last Friday, which has been occupying a ton of my time. But on the side, I've been really getting interested in these questions uh, that are arising in the public about origins, and one of them is about Adam and Eve. And so that's part of why I wrote this book, of really trying to take some questions that I was hearing over and over again really seriously. And uh, one way people will misunderstand this book is to think that this is my view that I'm pressing. And I think there's a lot of legitimacy to it. But part of the reason, for example, Bill and I are actually working together on writing a book on Adam and Eve, too, is that a lot of the ideas in this book end up actually really helping the approach that he's taking, which isn't even really forefronted in this book, too. And so really, what what's really going on here on my end is I'm really trying to create space for people to think about this question of human origins in a way that's consistent with good science, but is as open ended as possible. So we can kind of think, think about it together and gather around a grand question together but with that um, we uh, uh, when i when i came and did a did the the first time with you guys at capture christianity with you and mike um, Bill actually wrote did two podcasts uh, dismantling our our conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So it'll be fun to get into exactly what these disagreements are and where they really stand. I actually think that our disagreements may not actually be as much as people might think from just seeing one side of this. I think there's actually far more in common. But that's going to be the fun of it, to kind of explore together in a moment really what the ideas are uh, here that are really opening up like a lot of space and where the agreements are and where some of the disagreements are. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, well, well let's get into the the book and, and we will get into to some of those disagreements, but there's, there's some interesting things that I think that people who are watching this and maybe finding out about you guys or this, this dialogue, this whole discussion for the first time, there's some things here that, that is going to interest a lot of people and, and we, we need to sort of back up a little bit and get some, lay some groundwork of what's going on here and what you've recently argued in the book, and and what's generating so much talk among uh, scholars, theologians, other scientists. So tell me about your genealogical...
2: Yeah, uh, so the crazy idea there is that I show that entirely consistent with the scientific evidence. So that's including evolutionary science, and everything we've learned in genetics, and all of the evidence that people said that disproves Adam and Eve over the last years and decades, or even really the last 160 years, consistent with all that evidence, Adam and Eve could have been real people in a real past, ancestors of everyone uh, from whom we all descend as recently as just 6,000 years ago. By that time, we expect uh, that, you know, everyone across the globe would be their ancestors by 81 before Jesus walks the earth. And it could have even been de novo created suddenly, especially by God from the dust and from a rib in a divinely created garden where they were the first to dwell with god that's entirely consistent with evidence now that statement consistent with evidence is important i'm not saying that evidence demonstrates it's true that they exist and that's what happened i'm just saying that they fall into this massive blind spot that science can't really speak to that Um, the only way that really science presses on that story which sounds almost like young earth creationism is is by suggesting that there were people outside the garden that God created in a different way through a process that looked like common descent or that looked like evolution. And so uh, then that really raises a whole bunch of interesting theological questions about how do we make sense of people outside the garden, if Adam and Eve were that recent, or if they were more ancient. Now, once again, I'm I'm hinging this on this idea that that, that it's consistent with the evidence for them to be as recent as 6,000 years ago, but it could have been just 10,000 years ago 15,000 years ago, 50,000 years ago, 100,000, 200, or even 500,000 years ago. And and really, science just doesn't tell us. There's just a a massive blind spot there, or it doesn't give us the information we need to really adjudicate that. So with uh, the evidence so open-ended that way, that just creates a lot of space in how to think through this. And what I really emphasize in the book is uh, a reading of Genesis, and a reading of human origins, that was really close to how I learned it as a young Earth creationist. Uh, you can almost call it a young Adam creationist view. It um, doesn't mean it's correct necessarily, but I think it, it made a lot of sense to me as uh, from that background. As I kind of started to read Scripture uh, more true to what actually Scripture said rather than what I'd been told about it, and really more true to what I was seeing in nature rather than what I'd been told about it too, and it just started to really fit together really, really cleanly without really feeling like I had to modify anything on either end. Now, I think Bill comes to it from a different tradition in a lot of ways. He's, he's not connected. He, he, you were never a Young Earth creationist, right?
0: Exactly. Even from high school, when I first became a Christian, I was never in the Young Earth camp. And so that just is, is foreign to my thinking.
2: Yeah, so in my book, for example, I, um, I take like a literal reading of Genesis. I don't argue that a literal reading is correct. I just say if you take a literal reading, you can go forward this way. Um, Bill takes a more like a, almost an entirely mythological reading of Genesis, um, it, it, or mytho-historical. But uh, so you you think there's a historical kernel underneath there, right, Bill? Yes. But it's mainly mythical. You don't feel like it needs to be in the exact setting or or protect.
0: Right. Um. One of the reasons that I prefer to have a a different view than Josh's is because I think it makes more sense of the biblical data. Uh, Josh's view, as he described it to us, is very literalistic. It, it, It really is almost like young earth creationism. And before I wanted to look at the consilience of Genesis with modern science, I thought it important to first determine what does the Bible actually say about Adam and Eve. And so the first thing I did was to buy a slew of commentaries on Genesis 1-11 to and begin to study them. And what I learned was that the stories of Adam and Eve have to be interpreted within the context of the primeval history of Genesis 1 to 11. And that primeval history needs to be interpreted within the wider context of the book of Genesis, and the book of Genesis needs to be interpreted within the wider context of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so this is really a lot more than Adam and Eve that this is about. Uh, They're just one part of this whole story. And it seems to me that on the basis of a number of factors, it's very plausible to think that these stories of the primeval history, from the creation to the call of Abraham, are not literal, historical narratives, but have a genre that is, as Josh indicated, largely shaped by mythology. Now, like Josh, I'm not saying that this is the true view. I'm saying this is an alternative proposal that I find plausible. I I find it hermeneutically more plausible than the sort of literalistic view that motivates Josh's view. So I don't see these so much as competitors as alternatives that are available to the biblically faithful Christian.
2: Well, I'd say they're kind of like uh, two opposite poles of a continuum. Um uh, so if you take, uh, well, so one way I've described it, although Bill is not a Catholic, his view is essentially a Catholic view in a lot of ways. I'm not supposed to say that, right, Bill? Or <laughs> it's okay. Many people mistake me for Catholic. And so what, what's important about that view, uh, just to clarify, and to be clear, a lot of my work also draws on like a Catholic notion of monogenesis and, and and Kenneth Kemp's work and. And things like that. So I'm not trying to say that there's a total disconnect. Here. I mean, we're all part of the large church anyways. But the, but the key difference, I would say, is using Catholic language, which, which may not be Bill's is that that most Catholics would be uncomfortable with the idea of rational souls outside the garden, people with fully human minds outside the garden and are breeding with Adam and Eve's lineage that that's kind of what becomes important um, from that point of view. And so that's what pushes Adam and Eve so far back in history. It's that we can see evidence of human-like minds in in the archaeological record. And so if you're the point of view, well, you know, Adam and Eve are the progenitors of that type of mind, and people with that type of mind don't appear on Earth before them, then you're going to want to move Adam and Eve back. And by necessity, uh, or by hermeneutics or whatever, it's going to come with a more mythological interpretation of Genesis. Now, I am not really in that. Uh, in that tradition. I'm not convinced that that's necessary. I'm convinced that a lot of people believe it. I'm convinced that they really think that that's important. I'm not yet convinced that that's what's required of us by scripture. I think that there is, I think even in Catholicism, it's an open question about whether or not there uh, there can be rational minds outside the garden. And it comes up often, for example, in discourse about intelligent aliens. Intelligent aliens would be people the, on other planets that are not human they're not the people about whom scripture is talking about and bill would even say that god could have created those intelligent aliens there they would they'd be rational souls but they wouldn't be descending from adam and eve and i think there's an equivalence that we have to consider if, if that's irrelevant to the scriptural story that gives space to think then about uh, rational souls outside the garden but that ends up being really the crux of the question really weighing these two things to what extent are um, you can call it literalistic details, or you can even call it narrative details, as more, um, uh, as for example, Richard Averbeck might say. Um, or how important are those? How important is it to keep Adam and Eve in a Neolithic setting with the rise of agriculture versus how important is it to have them at the, at the beginning and the first people with a human mind on Earth? Is that a good way to frame the, 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 the contrast and decision?
0: I do think that that's a very good way to frame it, Josh. Uh, I like to think that Josh and my views or proposals are very much alike, really, except I hold to an early Adam and he holds to a recent Adam or an ancient versus a recent Adam. Um,
1: And when you say, when you say ancient, how how ancient are you saying, are you talking? What I'm
0: thinking on the base? Well, now this is a scientific question, not a, biblical question. I, I, you can't answer that biblically. But scientifically, I am um, I think it's plausible to think that Adam uh, belonged to the species Homo heidelbergensis. That is to say that Adam was a, a Heidelberg man. A Heidelberg man is largely or widely regarded as the last common ancestor of Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. And that and would put in... Him- Yes, and Denise are now Homo antichessor, according to some of the most recent work on these fossils in Spain. Um, and that would put him somewhere around 750,000 years ago or earlier.
2: So it's really early, and what's interesting too, is is. <laughs> this is actually how uh, Bill and I first connected too. So there's a book published, uh, which I'll, I'll leave out the name for right now, but it's in 2017. That really made strong claims about saying that that you know scientific evidence basically is entirely against the idea of being of there being a single progenitor origin of humans, and we got into detail on that scientific evidence together, didn't we, uh, Bill? Well,
0: yes, this was what captivated me, and I'm going to mention the names because I think our <laughs> viewers need to be aware of the protagonists in the debate. It was a book published by Dennis Venema, a biologist, and my former colleague Scott McKnight, a New Testament scholar. And one of the things that bothered me about this book was that it led off in part one with the scientific evidence. It was science that was pulling the nose of theology. And then the second part of the book was how do you rewrite your theology in light of the science? And to me that's bad hermeneutics. And so that was why I wanted to first tackle the hermeneutical questions. What are we committed to by Genesis 1 to 11? And here I would just say, Josh, I'm not suggesting, as you know, that my view is required or necessary, just that it's a a plausible alternative.
2: Well, so this gets to a really important point, which uh, we'll circle back to this, but I asked you actually, when we were at Reasons to Believe in January, right? Mm -hmm. I asked you, you know, my, my book actually has a very low bar. I'm not trying to convince anyone that this view of Adam and Eve is correct yeah what I'm actually arguing is that it's that it's acceptable right and uh, and I remember looking to you and saying you know Bill you know you've we've been talking about this for a while I know it's not your view but do you believe that this is acceptable and then do you remember what you told me and how you thought about it could you I don't remember I don't You'll have to you said, refresh i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna put some words in your mouth and you can correct right. them in your own words and kind of clarify your thinking too you said you know that's an interesting way to put it let me think about what that means and you kind of sat there for a moment and you said well i think what you're meaning is would i be okay with someone at talbot teaching this oh remember no but yeah that
0: would be one way to think of what acceptability involves would i want somebody like this on my seminary faculty
2: And then you said, yeah, I actually think it is acceptable. Now, hopefully you still think that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So so did I I meet my goal on that? Even though you come to a different view, did I meet my goal saying this is like an acceptable view? Now, you have identified at least one important error I made on on describing ancient Near Eastern literature. But let's say I fixed that error. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, I think, as I said, that there are multiple Uh, possible um, solutions to the problem we face of the historical atom. And while I think mine is more plausible than yours, I'm not claiming that mine is right and yours is wrong. I I think that your view is certainly scientifically defensible.
1: Now, if you guys don't mind, let's run through the competing views here one more time for people who may may not be familiar with what, what the views are. I
0: think Josh needs to explain to our listeners why his view of Adam only 10,000 years ago is compatible with modern science.
1: Yeah, let's get clear on the science. That
2: sounds crazy. It does Um, sound crazy, right? (laughs) So how is that the case? Well, first of all, um, I'm going to make an appeal to authority for a moment, because I think it's important, uh, because this is also partly how science works. Science doesn't actually work with, uh, you know, lone wolves coming out and making crazy claims that everyone thinks is crazy for the long run. I mean, basically, if it's a strong scientific claim, we should really expect that it's going to start convincing other scientists. And that's exactly what we've seen over the last uh, three years. When I first met you, Bill, um, I I started to make these claims and people really were uncomfortable with them, (laughs) actually. But the reason why is that they weren't in touch with the scientific literature on this. I was building off some really well-established science on the distinction between genetic and genealogical ancestry. And what's happened over that um, is that there's been really large changes in, in the point of view of a lot of scientists. Um, there's a really good live stream video online with, between me and Alan Templeton, who is not a Christian. He's a leading population geneticist. Hmm. And he says that, you know, one thing I just really want people to understand is that this is really good science, unlike a lot of the stuff that my colleagues might expect uh, at the interface to talk about Adam and Eve. What Josh is doing is really good science, which is really a big deal to see a scientist of his caliber putting his reputation on the line about this. Nathan Lentz is an atheist biologist who uh, wrote uh, a widely read op-ed in USA Today um, early last year or late last year. Once again, publicly putting his reputation on the line saying that this is really good science. Uh, The book that, uh, that, uh, that bill discussed, uh, Adam and the Genome by by Scott McKnight and Dennis Venema, was really taken forward by BioLogos three years ago. And it's very notable that in January, they actually publicly acknowledged that they'd been making some mistakes in the science of Adam and Eve, and recently um, wrote three reviews, uh, or invited three reviews. One of them uh, was from the chairman of the board, and two of them were from scholars that weren't evolutionary creationists, but they were they were really positive reviews. And they even acknowledged that they had really overstated the science of Adam and Eve. So what's going on here is that this isn't actually a niche view. This is really how people in science that are really in contact with mainstream science are saying, you know, this is actually what he's saying on the scientific side is really is really sensible. It's actually really true. It was just really overlooked. And what's behind it is a distinction between genetic ancestry and genealogical ancestry. And these two ideas have been conflated. Um, now, I'm going to paraphrase from memory uh, one of the key quotes from Adam and the Genome, where uh, Dennis Venema says early on, and he quotes, basically, he quotes uh, NPR, quoting himself in the beginning of his book in 2017, oh. quoting himself back in 2011. I think it's important because that's how his work has been understood yes. for, for 10 years, where he basically says, he it says, uh, you know, we asked Dennis Venema you know, how likely it is that that we all descend from Adam and Eve. And Dennis, Venema responded that that would be against all of the evidence that we've collected in, gen, in genomics. It would just basically be the most surprising and completely counter to what we know. And, um, and it's really important to recognize that in that language that that was in a completely scientifically incorrect statement. There's no way to actually recover that because the fact of the matter is, if Adam and Eve lived um, anciently, we would expect everyone at that time expected that we would all descend from Adam and Eve, and um, and the surprising part is that it would just go even as recent as 6,000 years ago. Um, so, so the fact of the matter is that this supposed challenge from population genetics isn't really a challenge. Now, what actually happened there? You know, Dennis Venema is a is a smart guy uh, who is a scientist who's worked really hard on this. And there was a lot of really wonderful, brilliant scientists that I care about. And I know I'm friends with at Biologos too. So what went wrong? I think it really had to do with equivocating the idea of a genetic ancestor, meaning that we got DNA by direct descent from someone from a genealogical ancestor, which means uh, someone from who we share descent with. So I think, um, you know, going the other way, Bill says that I I think he has, I have a, a Josh, you're going to,
1: you're going to have to slow down because you, you, glossed over that distinction really quickly and i think it's actually really important to kind of spell it out so that everyone can follow along um just just go a little bit slower with the distinction between genealogical ancestry and genetic ancestry
2: let's explain it like kind of starting from some very personal way how we might understand genetic and genealogical ancestry differently and then i'm going to explain how it'll relate to even how bill thinks about things too um so when it comes to a you you have parents just like me. I have, I, have a, I have a mother and a father, right? Both of them are my genealogical ancestors 100%. I descend from both of them. I don't descend halfway from my mom, halfway from my my dad. I descend from both of them. Um, and at the same time, I'm their genetic descendant too. They're my genetic ancestors, but it, but I'm only 50% their genetic ancestors on both sides. So I get half my DNA from my dad about about half my DNA from my mother. And then if you go back another generation, we have grandparents and it's 50-50 along that 50-50. So it becomes 25% DNA from all of them, but they're all my descendants. And so that's kind of what's, how it stays the same is like the number of genealogical ancestors we have that are entirely our genealogical ancestors just is growing exponentially. It goes 2, four, eight, 16, 32, and so on and so forth. I mean, it reduces a little bit because of, of inbreeding uh, um, initially, but then, it's, then all of a sudden what happens is that it all collapses into the same. Just a few thousand years back... Um, What's what's really surprising that we found out is that we all share the same family. We all have the same ancestors, not that long ago in the in in, in the past. So that's what it means for us. That means our ideas of race are totally uh, are are totally naive in a lot of ways. Uh, Cameron, you're married to an African American woman, right? Correct. And I'm married to a white person and I'm an Indian, right? So one naive way to see this is that we're all different, you know, subspecies or races or whatever you want to say. That's how people in science saw it until very recently, actually, just about, you know, 50 years ago, but that's all nonsense. It turns out we're all the same family. Um, And and it really reorders, I think, how we think about the human race to understand we're that deeply connected in the very recent past.
1: And mathematically, that's just like a necessity, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, so you can you can build your intuition about it by thinking about, you know, uh, how many ancestors you have in the past. And if you go back very recently, you find out there isn't that many people on Earth. So what's going on is you're just sharing a lot of ancestors. Now, the big spoiler to that is that, well, there could have been isolated populations here or there. But that's also where science over the last 10 to 15 years has really um, reshaped our view of that. Uh, with, uh, in particular, a lot of work from uh, population genetics, but also ancient DNA by, uh, by groups like Outer Harvard, David Reich's group, and others too, where we've been able to, to get uh, human remains from thousands of years ago and get much more detailed information about uh, human migration p- patterns in the past. And we found out that, uh, that even when you talk about Europeans, who Europeans were 5,000 years ago it was a different group than that's there now. <laughs> One of
1: the terms that you use in the book is a genetic ghost, so maybe explaining that would be a little helpful as well.
2: Yeah. So it means is the vast majority of our genealogical ancestors, so people from whom we all descend, a vast majority of them don't pass us any DNA. Now, of course, some of them pass us DNA because we have DNA. We all have you know genomes or DNA that make us up, right? But uh, but most of them didn't actually give us any DNA, so they're genetic ghosts, and so they're invisible. That's part of why, and they re- arise really recently. It turns out that um, even though, you know, genetics can give you a really good idea of like familial relationships um, in the very recent past, that's how like paternity tests work and and how forensic DNA works. If you just go back like 15 generations or so, genealogical relationships or family relatedness becomes invisible in genetics because we just lost so much DNA. And that's just a few hundred years. That's just a couple centuries. That's really surprising. It's not intuitive. Um, most biologists don't even know that unless you sit down and have them work out a piece of paper. It's, it's, it's something that's it's, it's intrinsically true, but it's not intuitive, even biologists biologist misses it. That's part of the reason why I think it was so confusing for people for a long time. Now, one of the core points, which I think Bill agrees with, is that I argue that Scripture doesn't actually talk about DNA, it doesn't talk about genetic ancestry, it talks about gen, geneal, if it talks about ancestry. Now, some people might say it doesn't even talk about ancestry, that's fine. But if, if it talks about ancestry, it's talking about genealogical ancestry, it's not talking about genetics. And I would say that as that uh, that distinction has become clearer, it seems that uh, progressively across the conversation, um, that's becoming a widely appreciated uh, and agreed upon fact. Would you agree with that, Bill? Yes. Yes, I think that's quite right. Yeah,
1: I was going to like, I'd like to bring Dr. Craig in at this point and just, are there any clarifications that you'd like to add? Anything that you might, that you think might help the audience understand his view?
0: Um. So it seems to me that what the audience needs to understand is that if you go back into the past, just several thousand years ago, all of us share the same ancestors, and we're all descended from a universal common ancestor, just a few thousand years ago in the past.
2: Common now, population, right? Out of which there could be an ancestor, though. It's... Well,
0: that, that's that, that's the, the caveat, is that that doesn't mean those people were the only two people who were alive at that time. There were lots of other ones, but we're not descended from them. We're, we're descended from this couple and those.
2: Well, they No, could, we are descended from them. Well, they
0: could be our genetic ancestors, right?
2: And genealogical, too but they wouldn't be yeah, you get they wouldn't be part started. of the, that wouldn't be the, so what I'm saying in that book is that they're not the focus of the story of scripture. So the story of scripture is like a particular couple and they're exponentially increasing descendants. And it's not talking about the people outside. So they might as well be intelligent aliens on another planet um, from the point of view of scripture. And I think we can make space and understand that from theology.
1: And, now, and Josh, in your view, you allow room for other humans to exist outside of the first pair, right? Out of, outside of Adam and Eve.
2: You, well, you, you make room for that. And be, so I think humans in this conversation is a very loaded term. And so when people say that he's saying there's humans outside the garden, I actually push back and say that is not actually what the book says. The book says that there's people outside the garden. They'd, have, they'd be scientifically indistinguishable from um, Adam and Eve's descendants, So they would have human minds and we we would see it. They're not animals uh, any more than we're animals. Um, But uh, the distinction I'm making is a relational distinction. I'm saying that scripture isn't talking about them. And so um, the way how scripture defines human, I'm recovering a very ancient understanding of the definition of human. The way how most people understood the definition of human for a very long time in the church was Adam and Eve and their descendants. And that didn't preclude the idea of minds outside the garden because they believed that angels had minds too. Now, angels weren't um, humans, but they were also open to the idea of a- angels being reproductively compatible with us, which from a scientific point of view, they might as well be biological, I mean, they're biological humans. And so, um, so, you know, so those sorts of distinctions, I don't think that they were really making in the same way we do. And it's really hard to take that worldview into what they were defining human as, as was Adam and even their descendants that's the view i'm saying actually turns out to be extremely legitimate it's a very ancient way of defining human now that doesn't work if you're trying to create an ontologically centered definition of human as bill is talking about but let me tell you how this does help him so if you're going to take that ontologically defined definition of human which is how a catholic would do it with saying that if you have a rational mind on earth then you are a human which is a good summary of where you're coming from right bill
0: I would instead of on Earth. What I would say is it needs to have a body that's anatomically similar to ours. So, so anatomically similar body soul, on Earth. A, a rational soul with an anatomically similar um,
2: body okay. would be a human person. Yeah. So from that point of view, then you know if that's your definition of human, then you're going to have a problem with a with a with a recent atom because you're going to see all yeah. these other people. Outside the garden, and you're going to say they're humans. Now, you might get around that by just saying, "Well, okay, maybe there were humans before Adam and Eve," and 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 it's still not the humans the scriptures talking about. So that's one path you could take, and some people will take that path. Um, and I think that's an open question. For example, in Catholicism with a capital C, about whether or not that's legitimate, saying that there was humans that arose bef- before Adam and Adam and Eve are that. But now let's say that's not what you want to do. Which Bill doesn't want to do that. He wants um adam and eve to be the the progenitors of all humans um in a global sense well then it's not really genetics that pushes you back it's really just the findings from archaeology that shows that there's like human-like minds like walking around out there like making cave art and things like that and uh and you know you i I do want to press back on one thing and i think you got to correct this for your audience too bill you said i was misleading by saying that science doesn't tell you what the meaning of human is. But I'll tell you what, science doesn't tell us where we put the line down on when it really transitions from being human to not being human. Now, you're engaged with the evidence to know where what that evidence is, but there's no place where we can see a sharp dividing line. About, it
0: doesn't need to be a sharp line, Josh.
2: But that's all I mean by it doesn't tell us. So it doesn't tell us, for example, science doesn't tell us if my definition is correct theologically or yours is correct theologically. And if yours is correct theology, it doesn't tell you if um, if reasons to believe's approach to it is correct versus yours. Like it, there's, there's a lot of undefinedness there. It's, it, it doesn't give us like this cleanly packaged ancestor like we might expect. Well, I think that it can give us rough
0: parameters. For example, you mentioned the cave art. I think it's just utterly implausible, almost, unconscionable to think that those artists who created the paintings at the caves in France, like Chauvet and Lascaux, were not human beings like us. When you look at those, you you sense yourself in the presence of one of us when you see them. Similarly, if you go back to the Australopithecines and Homo habilis, these creatures had such small brains they couldn't <laughs> have sustained human cognitive capacities. These were just bipedal apes. And so that gives us some very wide parameters within which to plausibly locate Adam and Eve as the first human. Yeah, but, but I want to right. point out two, two now, wait, wait, want, I'm
2: going
0: to. Okay, well, go ahead. On, I want to make one more point. Before Josh mentioned about how Indians... And blacks and whites are all part of the same human family. What would we think of someone who wanted to exclude one of those groups from being human? Well, you see, that's what I fear that your proposal, Josh, does with Neanderthals. It it treats them as being less than human in our sense. And I'm just unwilling to do that. I think that these people were part of the human family. And so that's why I want to push Adam and Eve back in order to incorporate them into the human family in the same way that you would want to incorporate Indians and Chinese.
2: Yeah, but, but, and but, but there's an equivocation there that's important. There's an equivocation there that's really important to unpack. So when we talk about including Indians and Africans in the human family, that uh, that has very direct social consequences to right here and now okay We have to recognize that that's distinct and different than talking about Neanderthals. So there's legitimate debate even among scientists. So for example, if we had Fuzz Rana or Hugh Ross on this channel too and maybe they're wrong. I'm not saying that they're correct or not. But, you know, we could also get secular scientists that would say, you know, you know, Neanderthals were more human than any other being on Earth, but they weren't, you know, fully anatomically modern with, you know, behaviorally modern as us. There are many scientists that would hold that view. That's clearly what Reasons to Believe holds to. And and I don't think that that's fair to say that, that Reasons to Believe's uh, decision not to include Neanderthals and their definition of human is equivalent to saying that Africans today are not human. That is not that is not a fair critique, right? Well, I don't know, Josh. It's just
0: because the Neanderthals have gone extinct that we don't have to face that problem of discrimination against them. In one of your articles I read recently, you said, "What would what would it be like if we could imagine a time machine that would bring?" these Neanderthals and Denisovans into the present? How would we interact with them? How would we treat them? And I thought, whoa, that's really an interesting thought experiment. And I in the book, actually, yeah. <laughs> we want to treat them as members of the human family like us, if I'm right about their cognitive capacities, which I think the evidence is just so persuasive that they were cognitively. Yeah, but modded.
2: let's also back up a bit too. So I want to also make another distinction. So first of all, that, that was the first distinction I want to make. First of all, it is different okay. because, like, that, what you're talking about is a counterfactual because we don't actually have, a uh, or we're not imminently in a place of even inventing a time machine by which that's possible. Um, now we do know have, a, uh, you know, the genomes of, uh, of Neanderthals. It's it's possible to imagine a world in which we start modifying modern humans to have a, a Neanderthal genome, that's possible, however, it's unethical. It's unlikely it's un- that that will ever happen in our world that we'll have like a living, breathing, genetic Neanderthal, okay? Even though actually it might be technically possible to do it by genetic engineering, which is interesting in and of itself, right? <laughs> I'll say, <laughs> wow. Uh, but um, I mean, if, if we have time, I'll explain some of the really interesting experiments on brains in a dish, but that's another story. Um, but that's not really a pressing moral question. Really, what we're talking about is a distant past. Um, so that's one distinction. The other distinction, though, is that what I say is that in the book, and, and I think this is important, I say Adam and Eve uh, and their descendants are human by a particular sense. I call it textual humans—humans humans from the point of view of scripture and you know historical theology. But I also say theology today, in our moment, has to really consider those people outside the garden and kind of understand who they are. And what I suggest and argue for is that if Adam and Eve are are recent, that those people outside the garden are actually fully human in really important ways. They'd be having the same human rights and dignity as us. They'd be having human minds. The only real difference is that they're not being spoken of by Scripture. And maybe uh, you can make space for the idea that maybe there's something structurally different about their spirit. I didn't take this view. That, that would be maybe what Andrew Locke would do. Um, that gives them uh, like a certain hidden capacity for engaging with God in a way that other people don't. But uh, once again, I don't actually go that way. Uh, that, that's what someone else could do, which Andrew Locke does. But um, but what I say is that really, if we're gonna have Adam and Eve recent, that we really do have to see them as fully human in important ways. And the primary distinction is just that they're not the humans to whom scripture is referring. And with that move, I think that uh, I think that it actually resolves um, that issue too. So I'm not saying that, that Adam and Eve in lineage are the only people that have human rights and dignity. I'm saying that it's just that these other people are outside the view of scripture. And so, so if we were to take ourselves back in time into that moment, to think about Adam and Eve's descendants alongside other people, that there would still be a moral problem with Adam and Eve's descendants treating them poorly, um, that we would want to treat them equally as human. In fact, we wouldn't even be able to distinguish who was an Adam and Eve's descendants and otherwise, either way. So that from a theological point of view, that we need to do that. Now, you might reject that all of those ideas, but it's still not, I think, even if I'm wrong on that. It avoids the particular thing that, that you're saying is a problem with it.
1: Dr. Craig, before you come back on that, if you can just hold it for, for a moment, I do want to mention that they are in the middle, Dr. Swamadas and Dr. Craig are in the middle of writing a joint book on this question. And that, that's part of the reason why we're meeting today is to promote this book. Whenever it, uh, when, when is it supposed to come out, by the way? Oh,
0: it's not even under contract yet.
2: So oh, okay. this is a- our current project. Well, my goal is to actually finish and get a draft by the end of summer. So we'll see. At least, I mean, Bill's already done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of uh, writing in a lot of context. I just need to start pulling together. Um, and, of course, we've never actually written a book together. So I'm sure there will be a certain amount of hashing out that goes on um, to get the details. But uh, I'm pretty well, excited if, about
1: it. Yeah, if you're enjoying this conversation, you'll probably, in in all probability, enjoy the book when it does come out. So I just wanted to to put that on everyone's radar now craig or dr craig I, I don't know if we actually got to the point where because we laid out josh's view but i don't know that we were able to lay out oh yeah fully, so let me tell you how, flesh out your
2: view so let me tell you how the science that i was talking about ends up really helping bill and this is actually how we got connected and i remember when we were talking about this early on bill i was really curious like you know are you going to come over to a recent adam any of you or are you going to stay with a more ancient adam any of you and i got to tell you. Um, I was personally a bit kind of torn about it, but part of me is like, I really hope he takes the ancient Adam and Eve view because diversity's fun and it's more interesting that way, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> I'm just trying to figure it out. <laughs> and so anyways, you ended up kind of landing a more ancient Adam and Eve point yeah. of view, I would say, but this is actually how it really helps. So I think part of the reason why, um, uh, for example, in Adam the Genome, it was taken as such a strong statement that Adam and Eve was ruled out was because of fundamental misunderstanding of the theological concepts of soul progenitorship and monogenesis. And this is still something that, I mean, if you read the recent reviews from BioLogos, you'll see it's still something they're really struggling with. So when scientists hear the term monogenesis and soul progenitor, they mean that and understand it in a very scientifically precise sort of way. What they think that that means um, is that when when a theologian says that from a theological point of view, they think that that means... That Adam and Eve, we all descend from them, and their lineage never interbred with anyone else. That's just what they think, okay? But one of the things that was really surprising um, to me as I started learning about the theology of this and discussing stuff with Bill Craig, but also A.J. Roberts, uh, Reasons to Believe, and Fuzz Rana' Reasons to Believe, and also uh, Anne Gager at the Discovery Institute, and also you know Dennis Bonnet. and and Ken Kemp and other Catholics, because I found out that that's actually not what they meant. What they meant was something really different. What they meant was actually something very close to genealogical descent, um, where they were, maybe they didn't want to have other beings outside the garden. Maybe they don't want to call them people. Maybe they want to call them like, you know, animals or, you know, beasts or whatever out there, but it wasn't a defeater if that was the case. It was just like an uncomfortable reality they didn't like. But they would be okay. But it wouldn't. But if that's what happened, they would be coming to accept it. And I saw that actually in some of the your exchanges, I think back in 2015 or so, with um, or is in 2014 maybe with um, with Dennis Venema, where you had an exchange with him, where you, where, where you actually kind of uh, you did a podcast engaging with his work, where you said that um, you didn't want there to be people outside the garden. I'm saying people outside the garden. You don't, maybe don't like the word people, but or you know people interbreeding, right? Um, but it but. You know, in the context of the fall, it's not like that would be. An, just to say that it happened isn't to condone it, right? <laughs> and and if that happened, maybe it happened. Um, and that isn't like a that isn't a deal breaker for you. That doesn't dis, disprove your So,
1: well, Josh, think, let's let's uh, let's let Dr. Craig come in and uh, and explain his view. Give give him some time to talk. Yeah, and, sure. Uh, Is that correct? Am yeah.
2: I explaining correctly? Um,
1: One of the principal
0: challenges to the historical atom that was very, very widespread in the Christian community was this notion that population genetics showed that the sort of genetic diversity that exists in the human population today could not possibly have um, arisen from an original human pair. Uh, Dennis Venema said that within the last 18 million years it's impossible for there to have been an original founding pair, and even characterized this with a sort of heliocentric certainty, (laughs) uh, with the same sort of certainty that we know that the Sun is at the center of the solar system, we know that, that human beings are not descended from an original primal pair. And I wanted to take up that challenge, and this is where Josh's work as a computational biologist has been so invaluable. He has done original genetic modeling on this question and is able to show that it is entirely possible for the current human population on Earth to have arisen from an original founding pair if that pair existed 500,000 years ago or earlier. Now, that's not part of his proposal. He has a recent Adam, but for someone who wants to have an ancient Adam like me, who wants to have Adam be Homo Heidelbergensis, Heidelberg man, the last common ancestor of Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, this is a welcome conclusion because it shows that this challenge, that was supposed to be a a game-changer for Adam and Eve, is in fact uh, empty. Uh, The challenge completely evaporates. Before 500,000 years ago, it's perfectly possible for you to have an original human pair from whom every human being on Earth, including Neanderthals and Denisovans, as well as Homo sapiens, is descended. And so I am deeply indebted to Josh for his work uh, on this uh, challenge from population genetics. Now, where Josh and I actually have very similar views is that in his book, on page 50, there is this remarkable footnote (laughs) that says, when I talk about people outside the garden, when I refer to people outside the garden, This is just a turn of phrase for uh, a breeding population. In other words, it's a metaphor just for a breeding population around Adam and Eve. Well, I believe in that. I don't think that Adam and Eve were the only members of Homo heidelbergensis that ever lived. Of course, there were other Homo heidelbergensis, other Heidelberg men running around at that time. So in, in that sense I agree that there, were, there was a broader breeding population out of which this original couple arose, perhaps by divine miraculous intervention. But what I, I don't want to do, and, and this is where we I think are at odds, is I don't want to invest those other members of the breeding population with anything like full humanity, human worth and dignity, moral value, and things of that sort. As far as I'm concerned, these are subhuman beasts, in effect. Um, but,
2: but let's hold on. Wait a second. Let's make it.
1: sure that, that Dr. Craig finished his point.
2: Who were
0: eventually replaced by yeah. the descendants of Adam and Eve as their population grew and grew and supplanted them, and spread and multiplied throughout the earth. So we both agree that there is this broader breeding population, and the the question is, what sort of humanity do we invest these people with? And since I think that they're not descendants of Adam and Eve, they're not humans, they're not in the image of God, and therefore they're not bearers of intrinsic moral value, and in particular, Josh, I'd say they're not people for whom Christ died, these yeah, other so, members of this breeding population. They're not theologically human beings for whom Christ has died and who are objects of his atonement.
2: Yeah, so I think that that, if that's the direction you want to go, I think having an ancient Adam and Eve makes a lot of sense. Good. I want, I want to point out the scientific parts where the myths happened for a lot of people, because a lot of people still think that there's evidence against even your model, right? And so I, th- I think there was really two big misses, right? One is that they didn't realize that that a sole progenitor monogenesis point of view that you hold to was open to people outside the garden. That's that's one thing. And then the second thing was that they overstated the evidence again about how large that population had to be. That population could have been much smaller than 10,000 people, right. Um, right? Yes, yeah. And so I think, I think those think are the two words. And then also i think this is also a really key thing to make clear now you don't want there to be interbreeding between you know adam and Eve's lineage and other people but if there was a small amount would that be a deal breaker no not at all i mean i you're right
0: i don't want it to be because in effect for me as you know josh that would be bestiality it would be like people having sexual intercourse with animals And while, (laughs) given the fall of man into sin and human depravity, such as is described in the primeval history of Genesis, one could probably be confident that this sort of thing did go on, but I don't think it was God's will for Adam and Eve, and it may not have gone on very widely. I I could, as I said to you the other day, I could well imagine that Adam and Eve and their descendants would uh, practice social distancing (laughs) from these non-human people. They couldn't communicate with them. Uh, They they were subhuman, they were beasts. Um, There are all sorts of reasons why they might not seek out those kind of intimate relationships with those other creatures, and eventually then, the human population would so grow and grow that it would just supplant these others. But if there was occasional inbreeding, right, that wouldn't, um, wouldn't affect the- Let me the...
1: mention this real quick. We are about to move to Q and A, not right now, we're gonna to move to Q and A in about half an hour, about 30 minutes from now. So if you have a question for Dr. Craig or Dr. Swamadas, have it in your mind, don't write it in the live chat yet. And most likely, we're just going to have to take super chats today. So we already have a few people that have been sending them in, and we will get to those once we move to the Q&A section in about 30 minutes. Now, is this a good time, do you think, to transition to talk about the definition of human theologically? Do you think this is a good time for that? It does seem
0: to be a major sticking point.
2: But I I do want to also emphasize here that, you know, I don't actually know if the disagreement is that different because i would say that we both agree that each of us has that 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 both you and i bill i think that both of us believes the other one has a scientifically plausible point of view Mm -hmm. and a and a theologically acceptable point of view that's part of the church and that that are trying the best we can to do it's just that we have maybe slightly different uh different positions that i think you i'm not even really sure if i would say i'm advocating for a recent adam and eve i would just say that i'm that I'm trying to make sure there's space for it, and because
0: it's such a new idea. That's my understanding of your work as well, Josh, is that you're not advocating for it so much as saying here is a plausible alternative that's open to Bible-believing Christians.
2: It would be a mistake to take that as to say that that's disparaging your point of view, because I think you have a plausible point of view that's completely consistent too, and I think that's actually why it's gonna be fun. I'm really looking forward to to finishing off this book with you to, to make that space. Good.
1: Well, before we find too much agreement, let's uh let's look at this definition of it goes back to the imago Dei, right? The image of God. What does that mean? And how do we differentiate between a human and a non-human, especially if there were people that anatomically looked like humans? So let's get clear on like what what are the different views? I we both I think we all know that Dr. Craig's view of the imago Dei is a structuralist view. Is that correct? Yes. We'll go ahead and lay that out what what your view is and then we'll We'll get well, josh to it seems comment to me
0: that whatever view of the image of god you adopt whether structuralist or functional or relational there's going to have to be something about the ontology or the makeup of human beings that enable them to carry out that function or stand in that relation it's just unavoidable that there has to be certain intrinsic properties uh, that go to make up a human being And so I think that the ontological or structuralist or substantival view of the image of God is almost unavoidable. And since this isn't defined by Scripture, we need to reflect philosophically on it, and it seems to me that we would say that human beings resemble God in being self-conscious, rational, free persons— um, just as God is personal, so we are personal in that sense, and so are finite um, reflections of, of the being God is.
1: What are the major competitors to the structuralist view? Is it the vocational view? Or you said that you talked about the functional view. Well, it
0: view. that human beings have been given a certain function or vocation to fulfill, typically, being God's royal representative on the earth, to exercise sovereignty as God's delegate or representative on this planet. Another view would be relational, that we are in the image of God in the sense that we can stand in interpersonal relationships with one another and with God himself.
1: So one of, one of my questions about the vocational view, and this is going to be kind of philosophical, I was thinking about the de dicto, de re distinction that Alvin Plantinga makes in his book in uh, The Nature of Necessity and I think this might be helpful in clarifying sort of what's going on between these these competing views, is in the functional view, I wonder if they're trying to pick out, when they say that God has established these humans to serve this, this specific purpose in the universe, I wonder if they're wanting to pick out an essential property of humans, or if they're merely picking out a contingent mm. property of humans. Because if it's a contingent property— then I don't think we've really defined what a human is. But if it's an essential property, then that seems to just sort of fall back into the structuralist view.
0: Yeah, It is difficult to see how it would be essential rather than contingent because God has decreed to let these persons function as his royal representatives on earth. That, and that's a free decree, I take it. Mm-hmm. So it, it does sound right. like so it's a sounds... contingent function that God has assigned to these beings.
1: One of the chapters in that book, The Nature of Necessity, the, the, the very next chapter after he talks about some objections to the De Re distinction, is he talks about possible worlds. And so that's one way to help frame the issue is to say, well, look, if in this possible, in the actual world, God has given this function or assigned this purpose to humans, But there does seem like there is a possible world with this same person who just hasn't been assigned that function. But on the vocational view, you'd have to say that that person is therefore not a full-blown human, which seems just odd. But
2: that's actually the point. So that's getting to the core of it. So I I think functionalists would completely agree with Bill that if you have the function of being human or the calling of being a human, like the dominion call, that implies something about your structure. It means you have a human mind and so on and so forth. They completely agree with that, but they would appeal to exactly what you're saying to show that having the structure does not imply uh, that you have the calling, because you can conceive a possible world where you have the structure but not the but not the calling. And and what well, the way how they deal with that is that they would say, well, the teaching of scripture is that we all have that calling. <laughs> so we all we all get that by descent from Adam and Eve, for example, or however. But that doesn't preclude in the distant past that there were other types of humans that did not have that calling, um, or other types of people that didn't, because it's not that if you have that structure, you must then have that because the issue of a calling is a contingent reality that is distinct from the essential. So there is a distinction there. Now, a structuralist is, if I got it right, Bill, um, you're going to be uncomfortable with that. And there's a historical reason for that. But you're gonna to wanna to see those things as coextensive, that if you see one, you have the other both ways. I think you can make the case that if you see the vocation, you have the structure. I don't, I've not yet heard the case of how, if you have a structure, it implies necessarily you have that vocation.
0: Right, that was what I was saying to Cameron, that it seems contingent. It seems that the, the assigning of the function would be a, a free choice on God's part So I would see the structure as specifying the essence of what man is and and identify that with the Imago Dei or the image of God. And then the function is simply an expression of the way in which God wants us to operate on
2: this planet. Yeah, so I'm curious how you thought about the speculative reading I put forward, which actually really embraces that view, right? Where I say that... um, That Genesis 1 is an archetypal account of the creation of Adam and Eve, where the structural humans and vocational humans, because they're given the dominion call, are created a long time ago, maybe 500,000 years ago even, okay? Uh Um, And then uh, what's going on is that the story of Scripture picks up with Adam and Eve and their descendants. And so it's not that they're the first people in the image of God. It's not that they're the first people in the structure or the vacation of image of God, but they're just the place where the story picks up, and it's focused on Adam and Eve's descendants from there. So in the point of view of the story, they're the first with the image of God. But there's a larger story in which it sits. There's a larger reality in which it sits, where they're not the first in the image of God.
0: Now, just so everybody understands what you're saying, I think what you're suggesting there is, is yet another view that Genesis chapter 1 is the creation of mankind on earth. And then in Genesis 2, where it talks about Adam and Eve in the garden, this is sometime later, right? It's not a recapitulation of the same Well, no, thing.
2: it, well, so it could be later. Well, no, it doesn't have to be later. So this could also work with a recapitulation. It's just saying that it's it's a more zoomed-in account. Ah. So, so um, you could say that God created everyone in Genesis 1 archetypally, um, over a more dilated um, time period and more di- a more broad geographic space, and then it zooms in on Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that because it could be more dilated, it could be from 500,000 years ago till you know right then. So it's just a broader, more archetypal account. So it could be recapitulating it. Um, in a zoomed way of telling one story of Adam and Eve Then, in that. So it's not necessarily committing you to a sequential reading.
0: Okay, that, the, the zoomed-in view, as you call it, is the view that I tend to favor, that what you have in Chapter 2 is a sharpening of the focus from Chapter 1 um, uh, and zooming in on Adam and Eve as God's uh, first human creations.
2: Yeah, so what I'd say is that they'd be they'd be part of the so if they're referring to the same event but different resolutions, right? There still could have been other people God created in Genesis one. That's 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 the that's one view. I'm not saying it's your view. I'm just saying it's one view yeah. that works within a zoomed view, and then it's and then it's kind of zooming in on Adam and Eve. And so Genesis one becomes like a backdrop on which we hear this story. They're still the same stories. It doesn't imply sequential. Um, But it does imply at least zoomed in. Though it does work with a sequential reading. And then, uh, but that allows for um, the image of God in a structuralist context, exactly as you do, appearing outside the garden before Adam and Eve. Um, And it maintains like the historical affirmations that the fall arises from Adam and Eve, um, uniquely historically, and the original sin arises uniquely from Adam and Eve historically. Um, and it just allows us to maybe say that possible world um, of people that were on earth, not in a direct relationship with God, and not perfect, and subject to death, and not yet exposed to the garden, maybe that possible world was actualized in our distant past. Is that a problem theologically? Well, for, I, 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 think,
0: I think it is problematic, because it does seem to suggest then that you have people who are created in God's image and are fully human, but aren't descended from Adam and Eve. And I think you yourself would say that the way Scripture uses the word man is that it thinks of human beings as Adam and Eve and their descendants. And so that would tend to exclude their being genuine human persons that are not descended from Adam and Eve, who are in God's image. Well,
2: so in and so that makes me
0: uncomfortable. Kind of what
2: human, right? So what I'm, what I'm suggesting is, uh, instead of thinking about a monolithic definition of human, that it helps to think about it in a multifaceted way. So I think that even gives an account for why there's so many different definitions of the image of God. I think historically, this theological discussion about the image of God has been Uh, A prolonged contemplation about the meaning of human. (laughs) Mm. And I think that's a grand question that unsettles like these closed ended simple answers. And I think part of what's going on is if you really want to understand what it means to be human, and what the image of God is, you're not going to get it from talking to any individual scholar, you really have to see the plurality of it together, that diversity to really get a good handle on it. I think that's actually what's beautiful about the theological discussion is that it doesn't give you a closed ended answer on this. That's how I would interpret it. And so with that reading of the story, Um, or of theology, then I think I want to actually maintain legitimacy to multiple definitions of the term human without committing myself overly to any one individual view. And so with that, I would say there's actually legitimacy to saying that the people outside the garden are fully human, but also legitimacy to the fact that they're not the humans to whom Scripture is referring, and they're they're just outside the view. They're not what Scripture is talking about. They're like intelligent aliens on another planet. Like, we don't live in the world of Star Trek, but if we did, and we found these humanoid aliens on another planet, they would be in the image of God in important ways, but they also wouldn't be descended from Adam and Eve. Right. And so what we do to make them from that, and I don't think that you would think that would be a deal breaker. It would be deeply surprising to theology. We'd have a lot of questions we'd have.
0: Right. I would just say they're non-human persons in the same way that angels are non-human persons.
2: And that wouldn't be a necessary problem, would it? Oh no, not at all.
0: I mean, I think there are non-human persons, angels, and so if there were extraterrestrial intelligent life, um, I don't have any problem with that theologically. But I would just say they're not humans.
2: Well, then they're i not non but they're also not animals. So they're not beasts. No, no, they're persons. So they're like a third I, I category. Use,
0: yeah, I use the word person in a philosophically rich sense. Ah, I got it. I got Fational, it. Rational, yeah. self-conscious, free. Um, individual. Um, so they're persons, but they're not human persons. Well, I mean, say, they're, they're divine persons, too, right?
2: Oh, yeah, I agree. So and, and that they're that's, persons. This is actually kind of like the, the crack in the door, though, that I'm pushing open, because if that's what you're going to say, I'm going to say, well, then, you know, it just logically makes sense that you shouldn't have a problem with saying that there's non-human persons by a particular definition of human, to be clear that are outside the garden and are breeding. They're not beasts, it's not bestiality in terms of breeding. maybe yeah. it was even intended by God. We can put whatever label of human or not on them, but but all these problems seem to dissolve. It's, it's just equivalent to saying that there's angels outside the garden, or there's intelligent beings out there. Um, and we don't actually have to deal with all of the potential social implications because they're not around anymore.
0: I guess my difficulty there is, I don't think that there are any grounds scripturally for thinking that there are non human persons um, that are biologically similar to us, in well, addition so, to the descendants of Adam and Eve. I, I, it seems to me that the.
2: Well, I would Christ agree rocks, with you there. Yes. Well, I'm, I, I'm agreeing with you there, right? Yes, yes. So I'm not saying that scripture teaches it, I'm saying that scripture mm-hmm. allows for it. Uh huh which is different than saying it teaches it.
0: Yes, that's very true, very fair. Um, And I I guess I would say that while perhaps it allows for it, you know, you can squeak it through, (laughs) it's not the most plausible reading of Scripture. So on this view that they're non-human persons, you would say that Neanderthals are persons, but they're non-human persons, and there, I guess, I think that's too restrictive a concept. Well, what I'd say, when we're saying non-human,
2: that's not like in a total sense. We're saying by a particular definition of human, they're not human. But we could take a different definition, and they would be human by that. So from a scientific point of view, the the descendants of Adam and Eve are indistinguishable from the people outside the garden. I think this so is r- actually important
1: to, to focus a little bit on, on the fact that in, even in science, not just theologically, but even in science, it's difficult to define what a human is. Now, A, a lot of people watching might not know that.
2: Yeah, so this question, for example, about are Neanderthals in the image of God um, in the way how Bill is talking about it is really closely tied to the question in science about are Neanderthals fully human? And I'm just telling you that that's a place where there is a lot of debate.
0: There is yeah. a lot of debate, but I mean, it is rational to come to some adjudication of the evidence and have an opinion on this. Oh, and of course. I am persuaded that the evidence for Neanderthal cognitive capacity is so persuasive and powerful that it does appear that they have a cognitive capacity that is comparable to modern humans. Josh knows, for example, about this very recent discovery of a Neanderthal manufactured piece of string. Yeah, it's
2: pretty dates
0: to about 40,000 years ago. These Neanderthals got these fibers from the inner bark of a gymnosperm tree, and they processed these fibers to make them into strings or bundles. They twisted these fibers clockwise to make a string out of them. Then they took three of the strings and twisted them counterclockwise in the opposite direction to make a cord. And the excavators on the article that reported on this say that this involves mathematical, computational knowledge on their part, uh, that the ability to do this approaches linguistic ability, and they say there's no longer any good reason to deny that Neanderthals have a cognitive capacity comparable to modern humans. That's the last sentence in the article.
2: I, I think that's all true. However... There's also mounting evidence that there's cognitive differences between modern Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, too. So, both these things can be true at the same time mm. that they have cognitive capacities that are comparable to us, but there's also clear distinctions. So, now, are those distinctions important is the real question. And I don't think science tells us, actually, if those distinctions are important. And part of the way, actually, how we know there's distinctions is that we have the genetics. And some of the more remarkable studies coming out is when we take out actually those genes and we put them into cell culture and we can actually study brain cells from humans and Neanderthals. And we're not actually going to make a full brain. These are not conscious entities, but we can make uh, we can make some pretty strong inferences, I would say, or at least there's there's ability for And this is being worked out, to be clear. It is not settled Um, that, you know, there's actually their brains didn't work quite the same way as ours. And. And, you know, the fact of the matter is that Neanderthals, you know, didn't really make it to where we are now. <laughs> <laughs> wow. and so, this is, the, the, so there is there's, there's a case yeah. to be made that is not contradictory to what Bill said. I want to be really clear. It's not like, are, is Bill correct or is Josh correct? It's really actually both these things can be true at the same time, where Neanderthal cognitive capacity is far beyond any animal that we see today and is comparable to ours. And yet, there's still distinctions. So, how do you think, how do you decide whether or not those distinctions are important or not, Bill?
0: You have to explore it on a case by case basis to see whether or not these are sufficient to deny the humanity of the persons. For example, one of the areas is the vocal tract of Neanderthals. Yeah. They seem to have had a smaller laryngeal vocal tract, uh, because their larynx was higher in their throat than ours is. And so some researchers have claimed that they wouldn't have had the same phonetic range that we do. There would be certain vowel sounds that might have been more difficult for them to pronounce. But that's entirely consistent with their having language ability, and the ability to speak. And the very researchers that make the point about the laryngeal differences, acknowledge that fact themselves and say they probably did have language, even if it was slightly different.
2: They had a hyoid bone, which is particularly important. It's a a bone in your throat that's really important for human language, it seems, we think. This is a U-shaped bone
0: that's attached to the larynx by certain ligaments and rises and falls with the larynx. And it's also exactly the same in Heidelberg man. They found a hyoid from Heidelberg man, which is also indistinguishable from the modern so, hyoid. So
2: here's the puzzle though, um, that it's a tension that has to be worked through where I don't think science gives us an answer. So if we think about human race today, um, Cameron, your wife is black. She's not a different race. You guys are equally human, right? <laughs> There's no debate about that. Like my mm-hmm. wife is white, I'm Indian. We're actually, all the differences are really just superficial. They're just skin deep. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's bizarre, and then we get to the real differences that get down to like uh, cultural advantages um, uh, and like recent history, not going back thousands and thousands of years, but we're talking about within generations uh, and maybe hundreds of years. That's what produces most of the durable dish- differences we see. We don't see multiple races of human. However, if we're talking about um, Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, even if they are fully human, they are a different race of human in a meaningful sense, they're different subspecies.
0: Yeah, that occurred to me, too, that if you don't call modern different skin colors races, it would be appropriate to say that perhaps a Neanderthal is a different member of the human race. He, he belongs to a different race than white modern man does.
2: And that's not necessarily, once again, a deal breaker or killer, but that's, that's no, like the not at all. That's the tension that I think you see among secular scientists as they engage with this and also um, and theologians, because at what point do you say, well, that, well, they are different biological types. Well, which one is the, the, you know, which, which one is it that you put the label and understanding ontologically or whatever there, and there's going to be debate. Science doesn't tell us that science can guide your discussion on that bill. Yeah. And I'm not saying you're disengaged from science and science can't unsettle a point of view. Science can certainly show that certain views are false. I, I believe that science shows false the idea that the human mind arises just 10,000 years ago. The human mind arises long before. <laughs> um, for example, in cave art and things like that. So if uh-huh. you had a view that Adam and Eve are recent and that they're the first with the human mind, then I think you have a major problem with the scientific evidence.
1: Uh-huh. But, it
2: doesn't, okay. but it doesn't tell you that if, for example, the structure of Adam and Eve exists and then the vocational image of God comes later. It doesn't tell us that that's the wrong theological point of view and that that's actually where it is. It doesn't tell us if you take a structural point of view like where you are. It doesn't give us a clear deciding point of how to make those difficult to adjudicate decisions, does it? I mean, you're using your judgment.
0: Right, that's right. And, and I think, Josh, what you just said emphasizes the interdisciplinary nature of this inquiry where philosophers, theologians, and scientists all come together to try to wrestle with these questions.
2: Yeah, and I think the answers are going to be unstable. And I think that's part of the fun of it. And unstable in a way that, you know, you're saying um, you would see Adam and Eve maybe 500,000 years ago, but it's not unreasonable to think that maybe there'll be some evidence that comes out next month that pushes the date around for you.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's right. I, I, I want to be open to the evidence and to be flexible. I mean, in fact, there There has been some recent evidence in that regard with the dating of these uh, fossils at Grandolina in Spain, which suggests that these belong to a sister species to Neanderthals, Homo sapiens, and Denisovans called Homo antichessor. And that tends to push Adam and Eve even back further because you want them to be ancestral to Homo antichessor as well.
2: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, too. We had a dialogue with Reasons to Believe, right? And that was interesting uh, because they take a different view. I mean, well, well yeah. it's similar. From a theological point of view, they're actually very close to you, right? And yes, yes. From there, Adam and Eve is actually a bit more recent. So one of the big distinctions is you're okay with Adam and Eve just being chosen out of a population and spiritually refurbished or whatever. They really want to see Adam and Eve de novo created out of the dust. Right, But with that, they're open to the idea that there's more than one type of genome in their bodies, and it turns out that their model could be, potentially be plausible scientifically, too. And uh, with that, though, they really want to see the human mind to be unique to Homo sapiens and not include uh, Neanderthals. So there's a disagreement there between you, yeah. and we yeah. can debate about who has a more scientifically valid point. And we will. I mean, I will.
0: I want to invite people who are interested in this to read what we're writing, and uh, I think that when you—the the proof of the pudding is, what could Neanderthals do? What did they do? They made cords out of string, they had weapons, they engaged in big game hunting and other kinds of cooperative behavior, they had large brains like us. I, I think that the evidence. Is very persuasive that we're dealing here with people who are just as human as I and you are, and that therefore it would be extremely prejudicial for us to write them out of the human race.
2: Well, prejudicial is too strong a term. I would say that, look, this is what I think is so exciting about um, engaging in this project with you, Bill, that I really am excited about, and why, and it's basically our book is going to go deep. The book that the two of us are doing is going going to go deep into the fun part of the story that my recent book, The Genealogical Adam and Eve, totally punts on, hmm. which is this issue of what we call in science is anthropogeny, or how did humans arise? It's a grand conversation with an immense amount of scientific literature and questions that, that – it's it's a grand conversation that, that Christians and non-Christians have been part of. But there's just an invitation to engage in, not threatened, because there might be something that disproves a deeply held religious belief, but because there's something here that can really enrich our understanding of human origins together. Yes, and, and I think I, this I think might think be a... fun reading the science on this, haven't you?
0: <laughs> yes, I have learned so much. What's it's been surprising? mind-expanding.
2: Mm-hmm. What's been most surprising to you about all that scientific stuff? And then I think Cameron wants to start getting to question right. and answer. So. Well, what has been the most
0: surprising to me has
2: been the astonishing
0: archaeological finds from 300, 400,000 years ago of behaviors that are, I think, just undeniably modern. That's been the thing that has just taken my breath away.
2: And I'm curious, too, you've been reading a ton of the ancient Near Eastern scholarship and a lot of the science, so, yes. uh, which which makes it incredibly fun to talk to you. So if I find a cool science paper, I send it to you, and we have a really fun exchange about it. But you're often sending me science papers too that I haven't really come across before, which has been really enriching and fun. What's the size of the scientific literature, the amount of stuff out there compared to the amount of stuff on engineering? Eastern? Is it larger or smaller? Or oh, much, much larger in the science. What stri-
0: uh, strikes me about the science is how many different disciplines there are engaged. So I've been reading things like the Journal of Phonetics, but also <laughs> cultural anthropology, or the Journal of Linguistics. Uh, it, it, it's uh, the the diversity of these scientific fields that come together in the quest of the historical atom
2: is just astonishing. It's expansive. It's, yeah. uh, it's funny, I think, I, I remember early on talking to you where you wanted me to summarize the whole field and i told you (laughs) that's not possible (laughs) we could maybe give a little field guide with some really
0: cool well i think your work in genetics has just been wonderful josh and so helpful to me and i think to the church
2: well i think that's going to be the place where um that's one place where we are going to go into more detail because it is that is something where i think it even really it, I think it actually expanded how uh, how how scientists thought about the limits of the evidence. So it'll be fun. All right. All right. I
1: think this I think is a great time to transition after we had some some brotherly love there, shared back and forth. Uh, I just wanted to remind people we have six hundred and twenty people watching live right now, which is actually a record for us. That's really cool. Oh, if wow. you've been in. Yeah, If you've been enjoying this conversation, please hit that subscribe button and also turn on the little bell to all so you can get notifications when we post new videos. It's really important to do that so you can watch the new content that we're putting out, which right now we're putting out so much more content than normal. And well, let's get into some Q&A. So we have all three of us here on the screen. The first question is from Sentinel Apologetics. He has a a YouTube channel where he does apologetics. And his question is, Genesis one is pre-Adam, roughly two hundred thousand years ago, out of Africa. Genesis two is Adam, roughly seventy thousand years ago, in the Persian Gulf. Genesis six through nine is roughly thirteen thousand years ago in the Persian Gulf. Genesis ten through eleven is roughly ten thousand years ago, up up to the Earth third period, roughly four thousand years ago. It's not really a question. It just looks like
2: so he's is, presenting a model. Right. That, uh, that that I would say, um, you know, what m- my work is doing is showing that there's a lot of scientific plausibility to that model alongside others. And so that that's the fun thing. People are going to put it together differently. And, and I think that that's great. Um, now, the question then is, how does a person like him get that idea into the public space? What I would say is, it'd be really interesting and important for people to start actually writing papers where they try and pull it all together that are academic papers. Like a great place to publish it might be um, Perspectives in Science and the Christian Faith, which is put the Journal of the American Scientific Affiliation. There might be other places too, where you can really start to clarify what actually it is that you're saying, get reviewed by other scholars. And um, we can start looking at what that range is. And, um, and that way it could be more than um, just a, just a few people, uh putting out their ideas about how physical. i just think there's going to be a large diversity what would you add to that bill well
0: i think the difficulty with the questioner's scenario is that he didn't say anything about the genre of the literary genre of genesis 1 to 11 he just threw a bunch of dates at us for these different parts of the narrative and i certainly don't think that that's the way the narrative itself intends to be read so is he trying to read modern science into the narrative is this a kind of concordist hermeneutic where he's saying that this is what the narrative is saying or is he just trying to offer a sort of scientific secular dating of the different events that are described there it needs to be a lot more fleshed out
2: I would agree i think that the key question and that's why i'm suggesting to write an academic paper where that has review i think there's got to be some sort of systematic Um, explanation of what part you're getting from science what part you're getting from Scripture and showing that you're actually not really uh, that you're not really violating hermeneutical principles as you're engaging with the Scripture and you're not violating scientific principles as you're getting engaging with the science now there's a way to pull that together but really what's going to uh, really define what rises to the top it's not gonna be merely a statement of what it is but also an explanation of how you got there in a way that's absolutely
1: well, let's get right. some more questions. Yep, next question is from Solfraid. I can't actually see, here we go. So uh, I don't know how to say this name. Here's the question. If Adam and Eve were the first, where did Cain get his wife if no sister is mentioned in Scripture? And if there were other humans that made it, is that evolution
2: or creation? Let's well, start with Dr. There's Craig. There's many ways one. to handle it. So Bill, you would say that he married a sister, right?
0: Right, that would be my inclination is to just say that it was marrying his sister, but this would be one of the proof texts that Josh might use to say that there were, in fact, people uh, outside the Garden of Eden.
2: Yeah, but I wouldn't call it a proof text. A proof text is something taken out of context that isn't is disconnected yeah. from scripture. What I would say is that, that that actually is part of the traditional the tradition of Genesis that people for thousands of years has pointed to a- to Cain as something to make them wonder about people outside the garden and then you asked is that creation or evolution well i'm suggesting that if Cain's wife came from outside the garden that she would have descended from a, an evolved population so it could be both creation and evolution And of course you know you know Cain could have descended from a created like a specially created um adam and eve but if the people outside the garden evolved that would have just been the way how god created them so it's not like evolution it's not evolution or creation it's really both or it could be both right Okay, uh, next question is
1: from Carmel Crunk. She says, For William Lane Craig, is Genesis two a sequel to Genesis one?
0: No, I uh, spoke to this issue a moment ago with Josh. I don't see it as sequential. I think it's a matter of focus that the same event described in Genesis one, twenty six and twenty seven is re described in Genesis two.
1: All right. Here's the next question. Let me get up, get it up on the screen. It says what for Dr. Craig again? Let me make sure that it's on the screen here. What do you tell Christians that proclaim that there was no death before Adam sinned, and if there was, if there was death, would it entail Paul and Romans are also incorrect?
0: I think it's remarkable that young Earth creationists who think there was no animal death before the fall and who claim to be so faithful to Scripture are actually the ones that are reading in between the lines. There's nothing in Scripture that suggests that animal fall, pardon me, that animal death was a consequence of the fall. You can read Genesis 3 and the curses that are pronounced upon the man, the woman, and the serpent, and it's not animal death. And when you get to Romans 5, Paul is clearly talking about human death, not animal death. So this is a case where People who claim to be so faithful to scripture, so literal, are actually the ones themselves that are reading things into scripture that isn't there.
2: Yeah, I'd also say too, they claim to be taking a traditional view. Now it's true that it is consistent with their tradition, but what they neglect is that's a very recent tradition. If you go back to St. Augustine, for example, actually most of the church at that time did not believe that animal death arose because of Adam and Eve's fall. one of the common things they would point to is that the, the beauty of carnivores <laughs> When you look at you know an eagle flying down swooping down and grabbing a fish and eating it Or a lion attacking a gazelle and eating it our natural response isn't to think oh What a horrible consequence of the fall Our natural response is to think wow, this is beautiful and what Augustine says which I think is fairly remarkable He says first of all to say that that beauty is a consequence of the fall is unreasonable And secondly, he goes to say that the fact that we would see a problem there and assign moral value to that is an evidence of the fall. (laughs) (laughs) And so what he would say is that young earth creationist view that um, there is no animal death before the fall is evidence that young earth creationists are fallen. That's what Augustine actually writes. In his literal interpretation of Genesis, he writes this. (laughs) Now um, now I would go on to say uh, that there is this question that would arise um, both in Bill's model and mine about these people that are very, very much more similar to us than any other animal. I would say that they are persons. He would say they're not persons. They're that don't have that. So there's a problem with their facing death. And once again, I think one thing that really does help is once again, this ancient understanding of the meaning of what human is. If humans are defined as Adam and Eve and their descendants, then... Uh, And we understand that what Scripture and Paul are saying is that death comes to them because of the fall. Well, then, you know, um, Adam and Eve and their descendants are in a death-free world in the garden, and death does come to them when they fall and are expelled. So then there isn't any contradiction with Scripture there. Um, It just means that there's something else going on outside. It's a different possible world that we find out is real. Now, I I do think that the problem, the questions become more heightened with a recent Adam than they would with what you're talking about, Bill, because you're, you're... people outside of the garden aren't really
1: persons, right? Right. Josh, I just want to remind you real quick, if you can sort of scooch, scooch over a little bit to be centered in the front. There we go. That's better. All right, cool. All right, here's the next question from Elliot Hopkins. He says, the theories of the Imago Day, and by the way, all of these people, that are, the, the comments that I'm reading have all sent these in as super chats, so they're supporting the ministry, so I really appreciate that. They say, he says, the theories of the Imago Day Prima Facie don't seem mutually exclusive to me. Is it plausible that the imago Dei, though reducible to the structuralist view, is just multifaceted? This seems like a great question. Well, either e- either one of you.
0: Well, in my opinion, we should think of the image of God as a structural feature of humanity, but it has outworkings um, that enable man to have, for example, a function. God-given and relations with others, but I I don't see those as part of the image itself. They're more the outworkings of it, or what the image enables you to do.
2: Yeah, so uh, what I would say is in a way that's trying to make space for the reality of the diversity of church here, so what I would say is, you're right, and I would say is that everyone in the church, I think, should and does believe that at least for the last 2,000 years—and I, I want to see if you agree with me on this—that all the different aspects of the image of God are coextensive within the last 2,000 years. Do you agree with that, Bill?
0: Yes, I think so.
2: But I think the they definition— pick out the same group
0: of people. Yes.
2: Yeah, so it's not like if you use different definitions, you're going to end up with a different group of people you're referring to in pres- over the last 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. So but I think they are different definitions, but they're all referring to the same group of people within the the last two thousand years. But they're different definitions, and I think there's legitimacy and frankly, to all of them. And so when you start going into the past to figure out how did it get to be that we're all coextensive by these multiple definitions in the image of God, then then I think that coextensiveness starts to fray as you go into the distant past, where th- by different definitions, you might come up with different groups. Underneath image of God, and I think that we shouldn't be troubled by that because um, the ontology works in present day where it's supposed to, uh, but ontology isn't really good with ontogeny and explaining how things get to be the way they are.
1: All right. Next question is from Dr. Cy Gart. He says, uh, by the All way, right, thank Zach. you for your super chat. Yep. Yeah, he's here. He's, uh, I, I mentioned this in the, a previous stream that I did an interview with him. He recently became a Christian and he's a scientist. He's a, I think it's molecular
2: biologist. Oh, uh, well, here's here's a question. He wrote a great either... book too, finding my faith. Yeah,
1: his book was super good. That that's what we that's what the interview was about. It, it was a super great oh, no, conversation. Work of his hands.
2: I got it wrong. Work of his hands. I think the it works easy. of his hands. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, so here's a question: Do either of you think that there will ever be a clear and universally accepted answer to the origin of humanity related to Adam and Eve, or is the best we can do is formulate possible answers?
0: I don't think there'll ever be a universally accepted answer.
2: Yeah, I I don't think so either. But it's worth to think through why that would be and how to make sense of that. And so I think from an ecclesial point of view, I think um, there's two ways to think about Adam and Eve. One is to think about um, the theology and our view of it as a a chain with many links. Another way to think about it is as a rope with many strands. And um, the way how a lot of people approach Adam and Eve is they have like a a chain of many links that if one thing ends up being disproven by uh, science or or gets challenged in scripture, then it all falls apart. And if the church was to adopt a chain of many strands, that would be very sad. And I think it would be kind of boring and it would also be very vulnerable. On the other hand, I think w- what we've ended up with in the diversity of the church is something that's a lot more like a cord with many strands where there's actually a large number of plausible ways to fit it all together. And not only that, I think there's intrinsic value in proliferating and increasing the number. Because even if one, or a two or a few of them end up breaking and snapping and not making any sense, it's not like it all falls apart because there's a whole bunch of other things that are plausible that make sense. Does that make sense to you, Bill? Yes, although I think that <laughs> my view probably uh, is much more pessimistic. I,
0: I think that given human ignorance and obstinacy, n- we will never come to consensus.
2: <laughs> yeah, I guess well, maybe that's, that's us, that's kind of what God put in us to avoid the Babel Tower of the... <laughs> Oh. all right here's the next question and this one is kind of
1: a silly one it's from russell jones he's one of our patrons he says when will cameron get his haircut so he doesn't have to keep wearing the ball cap during the quarantine hey,
0: man that's what i said
2: <laughs> <laughs> well we're all social distancing my hair is kind of a mess i'm missing a haircut too right uh, should i just should i just uh take well, cameron, leave the, that leave the hat looks, off
1: look, look at him. he looks great you don't need that ball cap oh my goodness yeah, well, this is what it looks like without the ball cap, so I think I'm going to keep it on, at oh. least uh, at least until I can get out and and get to a uh, safely go get a haircut. Um, I don't know when they're going to open, by the way. I've been checking every every few days to see if they're going to open up, but it doesn't look like they're going to. And that's completely beside the point. But here here we go. All right, here's the next question from David La Rosa. He says, "Was Eve De Novo created or Heidelberg?"
0: I don't see her as being de novo created. I see that as part of the the mythological and figurative um, description of Genesis 2. Um, We shouldn't interpret it in a a literal way that Eve was um, literally brought about through a surgical operation on Adam's side and formed out of a, a rib into a human person. I think this is figurative language.
2: Yeah, so what I, would, what I would emphasize from the scientific side is that science doesn't tell us one way or the other. And then secondly, one thing that I found out very surprising as I looked into it is that- Can
1: I can I but, but in real quick? You say, I have an issue with that when you say the science doesn't tell us, because I, I don't think that's a thing. I think that you're saying the evidence doesn't confirm one way or the other. I think to think abstractly as is, is if science is this thing that tells us things, I think I, don't, I, I guess you're just using metaphoric language. Well, I guess but... what I'm
2: saying is that if you believe that Eve was created out of Adam's side, um, there are ways to understand that in which there's no conflict with the scientific evidence. And, and so... what I want to
0: encourage readers to do or listeners to do is to, again, look at the literary genre of this. these chapters. They are just filled with figures of speech like an anthropomorphic deity walking in the garden, rustling the leaves as he goes around looking for Adam and Eve, uh, forming Adam out of the dirt and blowing into his nose. Uh, I think these are just clearly figurative accounts and therefore it's wrong to press them for a kind of literality.
2: I I would say the second thing that was surprising as I looked at this, um, which gets to this question that Bill's raising, is that there's actually a wide amount of disagreement amongst scholars about how to read Genesis on this point, point. and I'm not talking about you. you got to go to young earth creationist scholars. So you say it's clearly, uh, uh, you know, literal, but you know, someone like, uh, I'm sorry, clearly mythological. But a person like Tim Keller, or even, uh, uh, you know, or or Derek Kidner is a really important person too. They looked at that, and they they would make a different judgment on that, saying it's clearly a, a statement of what's actually happening. Now, I don't know how to adjudicate those,
1: Hmm.
2: but the thing that was also really surprising to me, and this this really blew my mind when I found out about this, is that a lot of scholars um, can make space for Adam not being created from the dust, because that could be metaphorically talking. I mean, there's good linguistic evidence that that statement of dust is a statement about his mortality, especially if you look at the way that phrase is used. But it's really the way how um, Eve is talked about, which for some scholars like Derek Kidner, Ken Keithley has also mentioned this, uh, who's a Baptist, where that's very hard for them to get around uh, from a point of view of scriptural inerrancy to seize anything other than a special creation. Now maybe they're wrong, of course you disagree with them. And that's actually where the debate gets fun. That's how they see it. But what was interesting to me is that, that a person could actually come, like Derek Kidner, to say that, okay, Adam wasn't specially created from the dust, but Eve really had to be made from his side. (laughs) That's bizarre. And, um, and to make that distinction, and, you know that, that means there's some subtle stuff going on. And what's interesting and fun about this is science, look this is scientific evidence doesn't tell us one way or another. Either hypothesis works. And so um, that means that there's a fun conversation to be had you know, between Bill and Ken Keithley. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't think Derek Kidner's around anymore, uh, to kind of hash that out and, and to make sense of it together. All right,
1: here's the next question, and we'll try to get through these a little bit quicker because we have a, a few more to, to get through. Another one from Carmel Crunk. She says, William Lane Craig, if Genesis 2 is not a sequel, wouldn't there be a, contradicting, a contradiction considering that Genesis 2 indicates humans were created before plants and animals? However, Genesis 1 has humans last in the created order.
0: Yes, and this is another reason that I think these narratives are not to be interpreted literally. One of the earmarks of mythology is that they are filled with inconsistencies and contradictions that don't bother the author, because he doesn't intend for the reader to take it literally. And so you can go through the primeval history of Genesis 1-11 to and point out just all sorts of uh, apparent inconsistencies about which the Pentateuchal author was completely blasé. They didn't seem to bother him one bit, he didn't try to iron them out uh, or make it uh, into a consistent narrative, and so this would be one of the many arguments that I would give for saying that this is not meant to be uh, of uh, a literal historical genre.
1: All right, here's the next question. I'm going I'm going to have to ask you to hold your tongue there, Josh. I know you wanted to comment. He says uh, this <laughs> no, one is no, from sorry. Hunt. <laughs> this one is from Hunter. This is another question for Dr. Craig. If Adam is our first human ancestor, merely dressed in Neolithic imagery within the Bible, how yeah. was his ancient history known to the author of Genesis? Divinely revealed or known to a wider audience?
0: Divinely revealed.
1: All right. Now now I'm going to let you come in, Josh, if you want to add anything.
2: Oh, I would just say, I mean, I think that that's what you have to do if you have Adam and Eve that ancient. <laughs> <laughs> There's no other way around it. However, if Adam and Eve are recent, what is really interesting is that it can start to become part of history where it's, you know, we know that, um, you know, oral history can keep alive historical details, often them framing them in mythological context, to be clear, too. But they can keep alive real historical facts for thousands of years. I mean, we see that in the Aborigines in Australia. And other places there's really interesting studies that show they can keep it alive for that time range so it's possible if adam and eve were recent that the original um written accounts of genesis out of which the version we have now is currently compiled uh, had that those uh, arose out of an oral tradition with direct witness of adam and eve and i think that that's pretty interesting and compelling now that being said i do have a question that's related to this about genre like you know there's I have a friend of mine named John Hendricks who wrote a book called um, uh, called I forgot it was called God Spy or the or something like that or or, or the Pastor Spy. It's about Dietrich bon Bonhoeffer. It's a graphic novel. It's a comic book. As you know, the comic book genre is a mythological genre that doesn't talk about real events and it uh, and you know it's it's completely metaphorical. There's certain tropes and you can see all these things come in that book. Therefore, we can conclude that Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Uh, was entirely mythological, and we can't really trust anything in this book as being historical. Um, so what's your response to that? Of course, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking satirically here because obviously yeah. what's going on is that that graphic novel by by John Hendricks is a historical book in a, in a fictional genre. And so how do you know, um, even in, because you don't actually believe it's all mythological, you still think Adam and Eve are real. So how do you, so I don't understand what the limits are of your argument of how you know I mean, just saying that it's a mythological genre, it doesn't tell you that it didn't actually happen. So how do you make sense of that and discern? That's when right, and Josh.
0: And, and don't equate a comic book with mythology in the folklorist's sense of the word mythology. Uh, for the folklorist, uh, mythology involves a traditional story uh, that is a sacred narrative that's handed down over generations. And so a comic book like this is fiction, but it's not mythology in the Technical sense of the word. It would be a historical fiction like War and Peace by Tolstoy, which has Napoleon and other historical figures in a novelistic setting. Uh, I give two reasons for thinking that Genesis is not pure mythology, but rather what the Assyriologist, um, uh, oh no, his name flew out of my mind, Torkilt Jakobson, is that his name? He calls it mytho history because uh, it involves historical figures clothed in this sort of mythological and figurative language. And the two reasons for that for me would be that the genealogies that structure the primeval history terminate in indisputably historical characters like Abraham, and that uh, gives you a predisposition to regard the earlier members as also historical individuals. And then secondly, I think the teaching of the New Testament, and particularly Paul, commits you to a historical Adam and Eve.
1: All right, we've got to move on. Here's the next question from Elliot Hopkins. He says, consider a person that's fully similar to humans in every way, biologically, rationally, they have a belief in God, etc. Sands the Imago Dei. Would they be human? If not, what about the Imago Dei qualifies a person as a human?
0: Well, on my view, the position is impossible. Someone who has all those qualities is in the image of God.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't want to say within my view, because like I said, I have a multifaceted approach to this. I'm trying to make space for people. But I would say that I can imagine a view that would make sense of that, where if you're emphasizing um, a vocational view, or even if you're emphasizing a structural view where there's a last component of it that's not discernible from science or from the outside, you have to be kind of on the inside or from a God's perspective to understand, then you just say from a from a human point of view, you wouldn't want to treat them any different than another human. In fact, you can't distinguish the two. But from God's point of view, like knowing everything, um, knowing where they fit into things, it might it might just be different. You'd be able to understand differently. So I'm willing to give a reality to a divine perspective that can make distinct make distinctions between people on those grounds that isn't visible to humans uh, on those grounds. I think that can be legitimate. A great example to think about it is, once again, calling. We can imagine a possible world where there are people that don't have the same calling. And if calling is a calling to be, for example, to to exercise dominion over the earth is given to some people and not to others, and that's how we're defining human, then that's entirely possible. And it doesn't necessarily mean that other people lack worth or there's some sort of moral peril there.
1: All right. This one is a little bit lighter question. From Daniel Apologetics, he says, "Did Adam and Eve have a belly button?"
2: Well, you think they do, obviously. Yeah, right? I would
0: say yes, since they had parents.
2: Yeah, what I would about say
1: you? As if if they were de novo created out of out of dust. That, that would be
0: Josh's proposal.
2: Well, I mean, I, I, my proposal—I I, kind of make space for both views. I would just say that uh, that it's fun to talk about, actually, and think through what that means. You know, one possibility is a God de novo created them in um in in the wombs of of different women right so it's de novo in the same way the virgin birth Mm. and and you know it's so it's similar to asking you know did you know jesus have a y chromosome is the question right and so is there any deep theological questions hung up on this i don't think so um, so, but I think it's a really interesting question to wonder about. Does, I mean, like, do you think Jesus had a Y chromosome, Bill?
0: Yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, he was, a man. he was male. Ah, right, right. It would have to be miraculously created by God. Right.
2: And so, but it's also biologically possible that he didn't have it. So we don't really know unless we have Jesus's huh. body. Hmm and so which we don't you, have
0: <laughs> what which, which the tomb was empty an easter that we just celebrated we won't have any yeah
2: body. so that presents <laughs> some interesting problems for the believer right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and um and so i think it's the same sort of question that we're facing when we think about um, that now one thing that people kind of presented well like if he had a belly button that's just god being deceptive i think that's just nonsense that's just equivalent to saying that god couldn't have created water out of wine because it gives a false appearance of whining. Mean, I think that's just a nonsense argument. I don't think it has any validity. Yeah,
0: or did um, the trees in the garden have rings, tree rings? Well, yeah, why not?
2: Yeah, I, mean, I think these are, fu- these are meant to be fun questions. They are not deal breakers. No. In, in any sort of epistemological sense. But this just gets to the, what the limits of science are science assumes a certain amount of regularity And, you know, when we're talking about miracles that are one-off miracles in the distant past of this nature, science doesn't actually make strong claims. It just doesn't. All right. Here's the next question from
1: Aaron Baca. He says, what do you both think of original sin and how does their view on Adam and Eve affect this area of their theology? Do they expect strong criticism in this area from popular audiences like pastors, etc.?
0: I think that those who are committed to the notion that Adam's sin is imputed to us in virtue of the fall um, will be very emphatic on emphasizing a historical Adam, because if you don't have a historical Adam, it's impossible for his sin to be imputed to us. But I have to say that I find virtually no scriptural evidence in favor of the doctrine of original sin in that sense. Uh, When I read Romans 5, it seems to me that Paul is not talking there about the imputation of Adam's sin. He says that sin came into the world through Adam, and so sin spread to all men because all men sinned. Uh, Sin spread through imitation, not through imputation. So I'm not persuaded that the doctrine of original sin is a very good argument for affirming the historical Adam, and and I would therefore affirm him or his historicity on quite other grounds.
2: Now, so this is an interesting question that once again was very surprising to me as a scientist coming in, and I have no theological training, um, so I say crazy things every now and then. Right, Bill? Well, I think it's
0: commendable, (laughs) Josh, the way you have sought. As a scientist, to be theologically and philosophically informed, uh, I'm very impressed.
2: Well, I appreciate that. I mean, the way I've done that is actually just been consulting a lot of people. One of the things that I found out was just really surprising is how complex the doctrine of sin, original sin, is. It is um, not. It's, it's like the image of God in the sense that there's not wide agreement about what it is, even among people who are univocal and affirming it. And uh, there's a lot of open questions about it. And I think one of the big contributions of my book is for people who believe that original sin has some component of it that's importantly communicated by descent. I think uniformly, um, nearly uniformly, you're going to see them all moving to start describing that in terms of genealogical descent instead of genetic descent. And I think the reason why is in the theological discourse, there hasn't actually been a good distinction between those two. And I think, like I said, I think people really across the spectrum, what I'm observing is that they're seeing that that's a valid distinction between genetics and genealogy. And when they have that in mind, they are largely agreeing that, that Scripture doesn't actually tell us about DNA. It does tell us about genealogical descent, if it is important. Now, you might take a view of you said that maybe that's not actually how it spreads. I think it's just actually a very complex, a, a complex uh, theology and doctrine. And I think the conversation about how it interacts, interacts with genealogical ancestry is literally just beginning. Would you agree with that, Bill? Or, or would you modify or, or moderate any of it? I, I don't know if it's just beginning or not,
0: but I think that Cameron is right that for many people this is going to be a, a deal breaker and a central issue. I I don't think that it is, but I think that a very great many Christians would think it's a central issue.
2: Yeah, so I think what it does, though, is that if you take a different theology than Bill and you think it's important, his model could be probably modified to work for you because everyone who's a human would still genealogically descend from Adam and Eve. Yes. Likewise, um, the recent Adam and Eve view would make sense, too, for you. Maybe you take a different view than Bill or me, but you could modify it so that everyone, because I defined humans as Adam and Eve and their genealogical descendants, you would just understand that theological difference. In that way, it's kind of plug and play like Legos. And there's going to be a diverse conversation to be had there. And that, that's actually the fun of it. People are going to pull it together in different ways. And we won't be using science as a club against one another to say, oh, but that view is ridiculous because science. Well, actually, they all are kind of equivalent from science point of view. It really then becomes like an issue of what, you know, how do we actually kind of start to think through these larger questions together?
1: All right. Let's get to one last question. And this is not necessarily a question. I guess it is. Well, this one is from 6640 is is his name. He says, Dr. Craig, you have influenced my life greatly. I'm fine. I am fine-tuning my Ph.D. proposal in practical theology. I believe the biblical worldview must be taught to combat the secular worldview that students encounter in university. What are your thoughts?
0: Well, obviously, I agree with that. I think that secularism is the great enemy of the Christian faith, which we need to confront. Um, And what we see in our culture today is a movement toward the kind of secularism that is already rampant in Europe, where belief in Jesus Christ is like belief in fairies or leprechauns. And so I think it is just absolutely vital that we as Christians, and especially we as Christian academics, scientists, and philosophers, and other disciplines, attempt to be salt and light in our culture so as to make the adoption of a Christian world, in life view, something more than a logical absurdity.
2: All right, with so that, we're can gonna- I, Can I add one point to that? I think it's important to clarify there's different meanings to the word secular. So you defined it one way, but um, but James K. Smith, for example, would who's uh, a philosopher out in Canada, who uh, points to Charles Taylor's work on this too, he's another philosopher, gives uh, three definitions. One of the definitions is what you gave, which is a negative thing. But I think that there's another way to understand secularism, which is the way I understand it to the point that I would even call myself a secularist, is where you're, uh, where you'd say that, that you're embracing the plural, pluralism in the world, the reality that people believe different things. And you're wanting to create a society where different points of view can be embraced and understood in conversation with one another. And so, um, and so that doesn't take away, uh, that doesn't actually end up depreciating the gospel. I think it actually creates the conditions by which the gospel can go out, because it's the conditions where people with different worldviews can all come to the table together and hear about how we as Christians understand things. Now, that's a different meaning of secular, but that's what I've experienced personally at WashU, which is a secular institution, and what I think is really important. Does that make any sense, Bill, or am I off the Yes, I
0: just think it's a wrong use of the word. I mean, what you're describing is an open society. Uh, one which is pluralistic in its institutions and I, I certainly agree with that.
1: all right well, let's let's end it there. so I really appreciate you guys coming on to the show today and uh, this is this has been a great discussion and obviously we've we've only been able to really scratch the surface in a lot of ways, but i'm I'm really excited. I think people are starting to get get excited about the book that you two are working on. I think it's going to be very fruitful and important moving forward. so I, I just really appreciate it.
0: Thanks for having us, Cameron.
2: Well, thanks for having us too, uh, Cameron. It's, it's, it's great. It's great being able to talk to you, Bill. Thanks for, thanks for the time.
0: For more information and resources from Dr. Craig, go to
1: reasonablefaith.org.